Sports Ethos New York Knicks podcast. Andre Gallagher fresh off a Knicks victory over Phoenix, a blowout. Some of you, I I say it all the time. Some of you do not watch the league; you just watch the Knicks. Then it's okay. You are a Knicks fan, but the way you talk about the team, with with the, the way you analyze the team, it has to fit into a context. Within the entire NBA. It can't just be the Knicks in the vacuum because you sound silly. The Knicks blowing out Phoenix and you got people with a thousand with thousands of followers on Twitter saying, is Phoenix just this bad? Like, uh, do you not watch Phoenix? Do you not know Phoenix is missing? Devin Booker, do you not know that when you're missing one of your best players that you're going to look bad some nights? Do you not know what Phoenix's record is? Like, do you not know what they what they have done the last couple of games? I mean, Washington blew out Phoenix. At the same time, people who do know that will be discrediting the Knicks when they win these games, which is also silly because you're not doing that for any other team. When they play a team that doesn't have their starters and doesn't have their full lineup, you don't even pay attention to it because you're not watching. You shouldn't be overreacting to these types of wins for the Knicks, just like you shouldn't be overreacting to losses when the Knicks are missing two of their best players. Or losses in general, for that matter. Because this isn't a championship team. They're going to lose some games. So stop being silly. Coming up, you had the San Antonio Spurs, and we all know that was a loss that stung for the Knicks Last weekend, San Antonio wanted the Knicks in that game. You could tell they came out with fire and desire from Jump Street. You got to imagine they're going to try to duplicate everything that they did in that game here at the Garden. This is a game the Knicks should win, especially after that loss. They should be targeting, targeting San Antonio and wanting to smash them coming in here. But San Antonio did have some advantages against the Knicks, and they have size across the board at positions where Knicks are small. So I do think, though, in that San Antonio game, Mitchell Robinson not being himself and him not contesting at the basket, and you've, you've seen the follow-up stories because I said it at the time. He was not his – He was. I said it on Twitter. He was not himself. He didn't look like he was in that game. He was letting guys hit those little floaters two, three feet in front of the rim – consistently, probably probably closer to five feet in front of the rim consistently, and a lot of times he sends those shots. Mitchell just wasn't on his game in San Antonio, and San Antonio ate in the paint. They ate in the paint. Now, that means Poto is going to get a few more baskets in this game than he did previously in the previous game because Mitchell's going to have to leave him to contest. But that's more, that's closer to what the Knicks' defense is in the paint than what you saw in that San Antonio game. You know, I can't have teams eating in the paint the way they did in that game. And I don't think you're going to see it again. I think you're going to see Mitchell eating up a lot of those shots, but you're still going to see San Antonio take advantage of the size advantage they have at the shooting guard in a small forward position. I think you're also going to see the Knicks actually put a hand up when Keldon Johnson is shooting, unlike that San Antonio game where they let him line those shots up and drill him. He shoots a similar percentage to Julius Randle. It's just, listen, 
Don't just let the guy line up threes all day. It's ridiculous. He put the game away shooting threes at the end of that game. I was talking about it before. San Antonio is the type of team that shares the ball and they read and react on their offense, and that could be tough to guard if people start getting hot and making their shots. And you've seen this a lot on the Knicks broadcast talking about what the records are when teams are losing in the first quarter and how often that team, the team that's losing in the first quarter, actually loses the game, which is interesting because the Knicks, not the Knicks, but the NBA is always described as a fourth-quarter league. You can turn the game on the fourth quarter and you'll see the whole game. There's some truth to that. I mean, the reason why you watch the game is because of the action in the game. So you just want the want the results and the excitement at the end of the game. Then yeah, sure. But the point is, if a team is losing in the first quarter, it tends to turn out that that team loses the game. And that's an interesting stat. And I think part of that, not all of it, but part of that is because teams start to establish rhythm and confidence in that first quarter. And once guys start playing with confidence and get into a rhythm, it's hard to stop them. You can't really contest jumpers anymore. Reggie Miller was talking about that on the broadcast on Christmas. It's something that all of us who have been watching the league for 20, 30, 40 years will tell you, you can't really get up on people and contest their shots. And when people start getting into that mindset that you're not going to affect my shot in any way, that is hard to do anything about that. And that could be established in the first quarter when guys start to establish their timing and rhythm. So if you disrupt that in the first quarter and make people uncomfortable and then they start maybe getting down and they start pressing, then the average player in the NBA, he doesn't play enough minutes. He doesn't get enough shots to find that rhythm consistently later on in the game. Of course it happens. That's why teams come back from huge deficits, etc. But the stats are showing that it doesn't happen quite as much. And I also think it's a product of preparation coming into the game. If you come into the game with the right strategy to stop this, take that away from this team and stop this play and, Sometimes those teams don't adjust. And that's sometimes that's Tom Thibodeau. But I I don't think the Knicks, when the Knicks are losing in the first quarter, I don't really see a strong correlation with them losing the game. Maybe, in, maybe at the Garden. But a little small little deficit in the first quarter is never, I've never really felt like with this iteration of the team that they're out of the game. I think sometimes... Sometimes the Knicks need to hunker down and and do the things that they know they have to do to win because they can't out-talent teams every night. And their second unit has one of the league's best defensive players in Emmanuel Quickly. Yes, I said it. One of the league's best defensive players, if you look at the stats, in Emmanuel Quickly. And, of course, McBride. And if you have McBride, Grimes, and Quickly, which they don't do all the time, but when they do it, it's a nasty defensive lineup. You can eat up a small lead in the drop of a dime. So I don't you know, probably should find the stat, but I don't think it's a huge thing for the Knicks, but it's usually a, a bad sign when teams are knocking down all of their shots in the first quarter. You saw that in the Houston game. Houston was knocking down all of their shots, and, and they were beating up the Knicks. 
in that first quarter, but then the Knicks came back and won by 20. But that is Houston. But when you see teams shooting really well in the first quarter, especially at the Garden, you know it's going to be a long night. You know, but if it's just, you know, neither team is really in a rhythm and it just happens to be that that team is winning by a couple points at the end, I, uh, by the end of the quarter, I really never feel like the Knicks are in bad shape. But with all of that said, I think the first quarter is a good is going to be a good indicator of what this game is going to be tonight against San Antonio because you just don't want to see this young team coming here playing with confidence from jump and the Knicks not able to stop them when you know that they came into this game wanting to shut this team down. So this is a game, I think, just for their psyche, a game that they need to win. And with the standing so tight, you know, losing losing to San Antonio once, okay, I can be the guy to say, all right, guys, you know, you're gonna have you're gonna have a bad night here and there. Losing to them twice and one of them at home, that's not nah. You're not doing that. You're not doing that. But one of the things you gotta think about, and what scares me, and it invites a little bit of the Thibodeau criticism. Thibodeau did not adjust in that game, and that is that continues to be the bane of his existence and the Knicks' existence is is stubborn stubbornness when it comes to adjustments during the game. Uh, I don't think there were a whole lot of adjustments he should have made or could have made, but having not having Mitchell contesting more shots at the front of the rim and having him watch as often as he did, I don't know if that's something that they harp on in the huddle and Mitchell just wasn't capable that game. If, if that was going to be the case and you need to put Hartenstein in there, you need to put Jericho in there and play them longer minutes, not getting a hand up in the face of Keldon Johnson, you know, that, that kind of stuff is player-centric, but it's, I think you got to be on that bench telling guys to get with it. But, you know, you in fairness, you did see the Knicks turn it around in the second half and really start playing hard and really getting after it, and it just seemed like it was too late. San Antonio was hot, and I mentioned that earlier. But you never, you never feel like you're seeing – schematic adjustments from Thibodeau when when uh, when a player is playing well or when a team is playing well doing something usually is usually off of screens and it's usually attacking drop coverage and then kicking the ball out to shooters or eating up eating up at the point of attack eating up the Knicks at the point of attack you just you don't see them switch their coverage to do anything different and you know that's that's frustrating and it speaks to uh, someone I heard on Knicks Fan TV, is a popular Knicks podcast with uh, CP the franchise as the host. There was a caller who called up. He had a lot to say, but he talked about how he, d- he just doesn't have confidence. Even if the Knicks make the playoffs, that Tom Thibodeau is going to make the necessary adjustments in the game. Just feeling in general that Tom Thibodeau is not going to make the necessary adjustments and just go down with the ship on or with whatever defensive strategy he decided to come into that game with. And you've seen that. And you've seen that historically. And you can't argue that. And I'm just, I'm not a guy who, you know, sits on his couch watching these games thinking I know better than every NBA head coach. I might fuss about this and fuss about that. I might criticize. I'm really, when you when you see a coach like Tom Thibodeau who has had success in the league, it's hard for me to just, 
cast those types of aspersions on a coach that you can't do this and you can't do that. But he's shown it. And I, and I think that there are just some coaches across all sports that get stubborn with their strategy. They, they have decided that whatever they came into the game with is what's going to work and they're not going to deviate. And personally, I think that's just a terrible idea. <laughs> it's a terrible idea. And you've seen him adjust a bit game to game. You've seen that, right? But in game, you don't see it. And I think if I'm going to if I'm going to guess at it, I think it's because, hey, we didn't practice it. We didn't work on it. So, you know. Doing it now and is going to cause bigger problems. I may whatever, man. These are pros. Not telling you to come up with some crazy, crazy out of the world strategy. I'm just, hey, blitz the pick and roll now. All right. Or, or we're going to switch this. We didn't we didn't determine that was the best strategy coming to the game. But no, right now we're going to switch this because it's not working. Play a zone for a couple of possessions. I understand you might not have. Uh, practice that, but everybody knows how to play a zone. I'm not saying play the whole game. Play it for a couple possessions, possessions just to throw the other team off. Just, just think outside the box and stop thinking, stop being so stubborn. And sometimes you've got to throw in one of those guys who's outside of the rotation because you need something that they do. All right, and you saw Fournier play some games because Rose is injured and, and Nick RJ's out. You saw Fournier come in and play. And his defense looked much better. I have to be honest with you, he did. His defense and his energy, things that he was struggling with earlier in the year, they, it looks much better. His offensive aggressiveness, much better. He's not necessarily knocking down all his shots. Once again, you guys are so reactionary. He came in in one of those games and he hit a shot. So two or three people on the timeline talking about, that's why Fournier needed to get some of these minutes. He is an excellent shooter, blah, blah, blah. He must have missed the next five shots he took. You guys, oh, my God. The way you, the way some of you want your biases confirmed with such little evidence, so little, it's just annoying. Do you see yourself? Don't be that guy or, or girl. <laughs> Don't be that person where you believe something and you've gone out on a limb and all you need is is one basket to prove that you knew what you were talking about. Like, come on, man. You see this with Donovan Mitchell every time he has a great game now. It's, oh, I hope the Knicks are enjoying their draft picks. Shut up. You don't even know what what Danny Ainge asked for. You know, it wasn't just draft picks. So every time I see that, it's maddening to me. It's maddening to me. Because you're seeing how well Quentin Grimes is playing. You saw R.J. Barry score 44 points the other night. He was reportedly in some of the iterations of the deals. Stop saying it's just about draft picks. It wasn't just draft picks. Quickly, again, one of the better defensive players in the league right now is in a lot of those deals wasn't just draft picks. And I saw somebody who was making the very same point that I'm making right now who detailed what the deal probably was, and he just put three first-round draft picks in it. It wasn't just three first-round draft picks, buddy. All due respect. I understand we're on the same page with this argument, but it wasn't just three first-round draft picks in a, in a pick swap. 
even someone who understands this point is still underestimating how much that, uh, Utah was asking in that deal. But if you needed Donovan Mitchell to have a good season with the Cavs to to justify that that deal should have been made, then that means you didn't know how good Donovan Mitchell was before. Your your stance should not have changed from the summertime to now. 70-point game, 71-point game, be damned. That deal for the Cavs was a much better deal for them because they didn't have to break up what was going to help them win a championship. Garland, Allen, these are the guys that they needed to win a championship. Their rotation did not lose a significant amount of players. Marketing, marketing, who they clearly undervalued in Utah, Danny Ainge knew exactly what they were getting. And marketing right now is better than any player the Knicks were sending in that draft. And I know RJ Barrett fans are going to bark about it, but listen, marketing is having a better season. Marketing is having a season more on par with Julius Randle's great season than R.J. Barrett. So you can't make that point. The Cavs just didn't have a place for him, clearly, or did not see his potential. Or saw what his potential was, but would rather have Mitchell and give up the entire haul along with marketing that they gave up to get him. But they didn't lose their position. They gained their position. They gained a position. In Eastern Conference standings. The Knicks would not have. The Knicks have to go on losing streaks. To fall to the 8th seed. In Eastern Conference. Think about these conversations. I told you about the conversation I had. On NBA radio. The dude said. If you get Donovan Mitchell. You might you might become a 6th seed or 5th seed. The Knicks might get there without him. Come on. Without him. You get Donovan Mitchell, you send the packages that were reported when you think you're going to be a championship team once he gets here. Maybe not right away, but within a couple years. That was not going to be the reality for the Knicks because they would have needed to still improve that roster to be a championship roster. Because coming into the season, you didn't think you were getting this Julius Randle. You thought you had the Julius Randle that nobody in the league wanted and was shooting 30% from three and was and with a terrible shot profile. You don't know what you're getting with R.J. Barrett. And I would argue that even with Julius, R.J. Barrett improving and Jalen Brunson without a bench, because you would have traded your entire bench away, you still aren't as good as the top three, four teams in the conference. And you would have no opportunity to get much better because you'd be capped out. You'd be out of assets. And what are you trading to get a player Better than Julius Randle. And again, we have to turn back the clock to what Randle was coming into the season. Who are you getting that's better than him? Who are you getting that's better than RJ with no more assets to trade? You're not better than Giannis. You're not better than Harden and Embiid. You're not better than the Nets for this one season at least. You're not better than Boston. Maybe the Nets fall off after this year. Maybe Philadelphia falls off after this year. But you have like a two, three year window. That's it. And so do the Cavs. You don't you don't claim victory on this trade in January. You're not you're not trading for Donovan Mitchell so that he can score 71 points in January. You're trading for him because you want to get to the Eastern Conference Finals and get to the finals and win a championship. I'm not gonna say it's a win, a trade win if they win a championship. That's unfair. But they should they gotta be in the Eastern Conference Finals at least. 
So you're not grading that trade in January? What kind of ridiculousness is that? The Knicks have had a version of, of Donovan Mitchell. Frankly, a better version of Donovan Mitchell in his prime and Carmelo Anthony. And you saw what that did to the franchise. They had a couple decent seasons and that was it. That was it. Because they didn't have the rest of the roster around him to, to, to build on it, to compliment him. Now, right now, at this second, you'd have to say that this Knicks roster was better than the roster that Carmelo Anthony was coming into. You'd have to, even though Amari Stoudemire was a better player than anyone else on the roster right now. But you can, you can, you can make an argument that Randall's playing better than Amari was playing. It would be a bad one, but you could make it. But Amari's injury history kind of mitigates that argument. But the Knicks had a strong team with J.R. Smith and Tyson Chandler. It was a strong team, but it did not last because they did not have the talent, high-end talent, to compete with teams that had two superstars, healthy ones. And as good as Jalen Brunson is, I think he's a, I think he, he showed himself to be a decent number two in Dallas. Let's be fair. But you need to have efficient shooters in Julius Randle and R.J. Barrett, which coming into the season, they didn't seem like they were. And as of right now, you have one guy who's reasonably efficient in Randle and the other guy who's sometimes. So it, it, it may turn out that that would be a powerhouse lineup with Brunson, R.J., Mitchell, and Randle. It may turn out. But it'll be less about Mitchell and more about Randle and R.J., playing way better than people thought they were going to play coming into the season. I'll be happy to admit that the Knicks should have made that deal if Julius stays on this level for the next couple years and RJ plays to the level he played most of December. And, of course, you're seeing what you're seeing from Brunson. You still won't have a bench, and it'll still matter. But if those guys play at that level, then maybe the Knicks are cooking with Donovan Mitchell here. And I'd be happy to to take a step back and say, you know what? A lineup with this version of R.J. Barrett, Brunson, and Mitchell, is that's hard. We can, beat, we can beat Boston. We can beat Embiid. We can beat Giannis. You still got to try to convince me what bench players that we're putting on this roster because we wouldn't have a bench after that deal. We wouldn't have any cap to sign any decent players and no assets to trade to bring them in. So it would be all minimum guys and rookie guys. Like It would be a weak bench, a bench to say the least, and there would be no one that you could trade to get a better one. Cam Reddish. But if I got to see Cam Reddish in my timeline one more time, Cam Reddish and his, his – Single-digit points per game. Did you guys are desperate to get in the lineup? Knicks are winning for the most part. Yeah, they had a streak, but they lost starters in that streak. And they were some of those losses, that Toronto game, the Chicago game, those are tough losses. Give it, I mean, they were tough losses. Cam Reddish wasn't changing those losses. Come on. The Knicks made this lineup change, and they've been playing well. Right now, they're top 10 in offensive efficiency and top 10 in defensive efficiency. And you're talking about a team that is a couple games over 500. Now, you can get into the weeds on that if you want to. But there's only four teams that are top 10 in both of those categories. Boston, Brooklyn, 
and the New Orleans Pelicans. And for those of you who don't know it, they're winning right now. One game out of first place in the Western Conference. Those are the top teams in the league. So clearly, the Knicks are playing well. Clearly, the record isn't necessarily reflecting it, but they are over 500. So when Tom Thibodeau made these rotation changes and people were jumping out the window because their favorite player wasn't in it, and, oh, why can't we have a 10-man rotation? Why does it have to be nine? He made the right call. And overall, and you can criticize a thing here and there, to be top 10 in those two categories means you're making a lot of the right calls. Why, why isn't the Knicks' record better? Well, one, they start the season off very poorly. They were not making the right calls to start the season. That's number one. And, of course, they're losing games here and there. Five-game losing streak does not make a strong argument, but they played well in those games. The Knicks are relatively consistent. Why do you desperately want to upset that apple cart and put in a player who was not necessarily contributing to the best efforts of the Knicks this year? Collectively, meaning the Knicks were not as good as they are right now as they or the Knicks are, were not as good as they are right now back then. Back then, the losses that they suffered are the reasons why the record isn't better now, in spite of their overall offensive and defensive ratings. They were not playing as well across the board, and some of that was who was playing. Some of that is how the players who were, were playing both in both the rotations were playing. Like Mitchell Robinson, who was in foul trouble perpetually when when the season started. He was a great impact player when he was playing, but he wasn't playing as much because he was always in foul trouble. And R.J. Barrett, who started the season off slow again and then got sick. I mean, we've talked about that ad nauseum, but you know what? You know who has also been a huge difference from the beginning of the season till now? And I got to say it, Julius Randle. Julius effing Randle. Give him credit. I ripped him apart earlier in the year. I said his his numbers of relative, they were good. I said it at the time. But his gameplay and his decision making was hurting the team. And also that his numbers were, there were ebbs and flows throughout the game of his when it came to his effectiveness on the on the floor. So the Knicks couldn't be consistent going through him because there were stretches of time when he would take bad shots. And then he'll get his mind right and he'll start going to the basket and taking better shots and being effective. And then at the end of the game, he has good numbers, but the Knicks lost because you were hoisting up contested threes for no effing reason. Not to mention on defense his lack of hustle, his lack of getting out and contesting shots, his lack of chasing down rebounds, rotating defensively, watching the ball, being hypnotized by the ball. His numbers look good. His rebound numbers look good. But if you're watching, you're like, okay, that rebound was was four feet to your left or your right, and you didn't move. And the other team got it, and next thing you know, they get another shot up, and, and we lose. the Knicks lose by four to six points. 
because you've been doing that all game. You're giving up corner threes when you don't have to. Not rotating. Not switching when you need to switch. I saw someone, I wish I could give him credit because he, he tweeted this about, he or she tweeted this about uh, a month ago. They pointed out that when Julius Randle plays passive defensive strategies, like drop coverage on a screen roll, where he doesn't have to do anything but just stand there and wait. He's terrible. Guys will manipulate him. They'll either shoot without him coming out or they'll come at him full speed and he'll end up playing matador defense. Just a completely ineffective defender off the ball when he doesn't have, when he's not engaged defensively. And this is not an excuse. It was literally to point out how bad he was when he does that, when he's not directly involved in a defensive play. But when he is, he was he's a much better defender. He's a, a pretty good defender on the ball. He's just not attacked on the ball very often now. You saw Siakam attack him and eat him up, but Siakam is a pretty good player. But when he gets switched on to smaller guards, he usually plays them pretty well. He has good feet. He looks really good defensively, but when he's off the ball, he looks really bad defensively. Or he did for for the beginning part of the season. And you saw a change. You saw a change right around when the win streak started. You saw a change. And I'm prompted to bring up a conversation that someone had with me and, and some other Knicks fans. This was at the end of November, very beginning of December, like very beginning, where you were still a couple games under 500. And he brought up that Julius Randle's back to his 2021 form or 2020 form. And I tore Julius Randle apart because back in 2020, he was so engaged on both ends of the floor it was almost like he was willing the Knicks to victory on a lot of nights, but it was it still wasn't just about him because the Knicks really went on a run when Derrick Rose came to the team. Derrick Rose was the player that really put them over the top as a 500 team and and uh, led them to the fourth seed. Even though Julius Randle was the most important player, you know, in those games, it was Derrick Rose's contributions that made the Knicks consistent. Offensively. But that year he was hustling. He was making much smarter plays, but he also was developing bad habits because he was making a lot of the bad shots that he takes. Those fading mid ranges, those hold the ball for six seconds, jab stepping and taking a contested shot. These are things that. These are habits that he formed in that season, but he was making those shots on a much more consistent basis. But the process still wasn't great. He still didn't get to the basket as much. He still wasn't in the paint posting up as much. He still had a relatively poor shot profile, but it was better than last year's. So when this conversation was being had, I had to point out, like he, he's still taking bad shots. He's just running hot and cold less often he's he's making 
some of those bad shots he's taking. He's still not hustling defensively. He is going to the basket a little bit more, or he was at the time, but it wasn't consistent enough offense. It wasn't a process that the Knicks could rely on. They were going to be inconsistent because his process was inconsistent. He didn't have go-to shots and moves that would always produce good shots, always produce either a good shot for him or for someone else. He didn't have that. It was inconsistent, right? So even in the beginning of the season when you saw those numbers, not the beginning of the season because he was a bad, a very bad shooter at the beginning of the season, but after a couple of weeks when you, saw, when you saw those good numbers, you knew that wasn't going to be what helped the Knicks win consistently because it wasn't duplicatable night to night. Knicks cannot depend on you taking those bad shots every night, not getting to the line, not being in the paint. And I ripped them apart. Now, here we are in January. And we have a month in change, really, of really excellent gameplay. And he's not been perfect, not by, by any measure, but definitely, in my opinion, but he has been as good as you've ever seen him. And you got to give him credit and you can't just hold on to a narrative that you believed or even if it was true you know, 60 days ago or 45 days ago because you don't want to be wrong. Just because he's different now doesn't mean you were wrong back then. He is clearly different now. And if you look at his numbers and where he is, if you're a Nick fan, if you're just an objective observer, you cannot shade him right now. You can't. It's much more difficult to just look on the paper and see improvement on defense, but let's just start on offense, right? This man is averaging 24 points per game. That's top 20 in the NBA. Now, just averaging a lot of points, to me, doesn't really tell most of the story. It's about your efficiency when you produce those points. So you look at his field goal percentage, Of players averaging more than 24 points per game, he is 15th in field goal percentage. And that's for a guy that takes about seven threes a game. That's high end. 24 points per game and top 15 in field goal percentage, which for him is 47%. Top 15 in field goal percentage, 24 plus points per game. That is high end. And production offensively. Okay. You look at his three-point percentage. I think I made mention early in the year. I know I did when he was at like 33, 34% that if he got to 35%, that's pretty solid. Well, that's where he is right now. 35%. Amongst guys who average 24 plus points per game, he is top 10 in three-point shooting percentage. There's some guys tied with him, and there's some guys tied at, you know, right around 36%, somewhere around there. But essentially, he is top 10 in three-point shooting percentage uh, for guys averaging 24-plus points per game. For guys averaging 24-plus points per game. We're not talking about the guys averaging 10 points per game. That's, listen, give that man credit. Now, you say, well, he's just scoring. Well, he's 11th in rebounding. Amongst forwards, he is 13th in points 
in the last 15 games, he's top 10 amongst forwards at 29 points per game on 47% shooting. That 47% shooting has been consistent throughout the year. Even when he wasn't playing quite as well and his shot profile was bad, or worse, I should say, than it is now, he was still shooting 47%. It was one of the reasons why I didn't believe in it. Because they were bad shots. And you take it too many of them. And he was shooting much worse from three at the time. And he was still taking it. His long two-point shots are a thing of the past. That was a big thing that he did last year. It's not something he does very often right now. In the last 15 games, he is third in rebounds. Offensively, he's been driving the ball more. He's been in the paint more. He's been under the rim more. Just uh, a smarter, all-around floor game. He still doesn't have go-to plays when the Knicks need it the most. That's re- one of the reasons why the Knicks lose some of these games. They don't have go-to plays, get the ball in this spot on the floor with this matchup, and we know we're going to get a good shot. They don't have that. He doesn't have that. He still thinks he needs to be on the outside. And listen, he's shooting very well, but down the stretch of games, you need to be able to get in the paint. He needs to be able to get in the paint if he's going to be that player. Okay, but let's talk about defense a little bit because – That's been the biggest change for him. His opponents in November were shooting 40% on shots 24-plus feet. So that's behind the three-point line. Opponents were shooting about 38%. That's nuts in November on him. In December, they were 32.5%. That is a huge difference, right? But that's not... That could be anything. That that could just be opponents. That could be guys start the season across the league very hot. You look at Boston. They start the season hot from three, shooting almost 40%. Now they're closer to 30%, right? So let's look at some numbers. His net rating in November, it's about 16 games in November. His net rating was a minus four. It's putrid, right? And we talked about this during those shows around that time. His net rating was terrible. Wasn't as bad as Fournier's at the time, which I think was like 15 or something. In December, his net rating was a plus 10. A plus 10. Okay, his player impact estimate was a minus 12.3 in November. In December, plus 18.6. Defensive rebounding percentage, 18.7 in November. 25.9 in December. Defensive rating, 119.6 in November. In December, 109.4. 10-point turnaround. Offensive rating in, in, um, I'm sorry, in November was 115.5. In December was 119.5. His free throw attempts, which tells you about him going to the basket more and being in the paint more. Free throw attempts, average per game in November, 5.7. In December, 8.6. Huge difference. And his plus minus in November was a minus 2.8. In December was a 7.8. Just a humongous turnaround. Humongous turnaround. So for some of you sitting around because you never never doubted Julius and you were a big fan of Julius. And when he was having these games in November, you were still supportive of him. And now you want people to sign apology forms on Twitter because Julius Randle has been lights out. Look at these numbers. 
For those of you who think Julius has been doing this, quote unquote, all year, look at these numbers. And when I told you that the top 10 forwards in the last 15 games averaging, he was amongst, I should say, top 10 forwards in the last 15 games at 29 points per game and 47% field goal percentage. Those other forwards in those last 15 games, one of them was, we throw it out, is Wiggins. He only played one game. Luka Doncic, Joel Embiid, LeBron James, Giannis, Tatum, Zion, Kevin Durant, and Julius Randle. So it's not even top 10, it's top 9. That's the company he's keeping right now. Give the man credit. You see it on offense, that's playing his day to a 5-year-old. But his defense has improved. And I said it last game, I'm not signing no apology for him, so I see that kind of effort every game. And when you watch that game against Phoenix, when you watch that game against Houston, and you saw how exhausted Julius Randle was at the end of those games, that's the way he needs to look night in, night out. When he does that, he is a completely different player, and he's a winning player as opposed to just a numbers player. So this is my official Flowers to Julius Randle show. I'm not going to shade him as long as he's playing at this level. And listen, Some of this might not be sustainable for him. This is why process is important. This is why the shots that you take every night being good quality shots and good for your team, getting to the rim, getting to the paint, attracting defenders, getting to the line, taking catch-and-shoot threes instead of just the jab-step threes, which he still does. Attacking closeouts better than he typically does. He doesn't do it hardly at all. But still... Not perfect, but elite, high end. As long as he's doing that on both sides of the floor, let me explain something to you. The Knicks cannot give that man away in any trade as long as he's playing at that level. And there's an argument, oh, he's playing well, sell high. Yeah, sell high for what? I'm I'm not the right person. I'm really not. Because I don't think, now you can say that the shooting is not sustainable. Okay. I think if he focused more on taking catch and shoot threes, I think it's closer to closer to being sustainable. But even last year, and I made this point uh, to Brian Scalabrini and Frank Isola on NBA radio, I said his decision-making, his choices on the floor are the reason why, are the reasons why he's not playing well. And you're seeing that now. His decisions are why he's so effective. It's his decisions. It's not just, oh, he's gotten so much better doing this skill-wise. No, it's it's what his aim is, his game theory is every night. And if he's understanding that, then he's going to be he's a player that you should have on your team. And you should be happy to have on your team at $22 million a year, 21, 23, whatever it is in this this particular season. That's a bargain. But he he has to keep it up. And you don't know if he is. You might think he's scatterbrained and at any given point it could all fall apart. So you want to trade him away. But it would be a dereliction of duty to trade him away for a first round pick when you think this is his ceiling. Like if this is his ceiling, 
you heard the names on the list. I understand it's just 15 games, but some of those numbers offensively are consistent, relatively consistent for the whole year. It's the defense that has been improved more than anything else. Yes, he's going to the basket more, but he's still averaging around the same. It's the difference between him averaging 24 points per game and 29 points per game. It's him going to basket is almost an exact match. It's the extra free throws, right? So if he understands that now, or if there's someone on that bench who's explaining that to him, that's finally gotten through to him, if that's the player that you have, then you don't give him away. But anyway, as long as this this team is playing hard and playing defense, I'm excited about the games. Brunson is back. We'll get into Brunson a little bit. I don't like the way he looked. He was he had a decent game against Phoenix, numbers wise, but he doesn't look as sharp. He doesn't look as crisp. He's missing his free throws. I told you I was afraid that he had lost his mojo after those game winning shots. I told you I was definitely afraid of that. And now an eighty percent free throw shooter goes to the line and it misses half his free throws. Ugh. And then you had those free throws he missed down the stretch. Mm-mm. Bad omen. I don't like it. But this is an important stretch for the team now, right? We're uh, halfway through the season about, and it's getting early late. And now the, now the team has shown that they have the potential to be a sixth seed at the very least. Right now, the eighth seed, they shouldn't let go of that unless the wheels fall off. You'd, you'd rather not be in the play-in if you're the Knicks, if you have an opportunity to get higher. Miami's playing a little bit better, and Miami came into this season as a better team. But the Knicks really have a chance in this stretch to really build a cushion between them and the teams behind them. And I keep bringing them up because I want to give Pace, the Pacers all the credit in the world. The Pacers have no business being ahead of the Knicks in the standings, and they are. Not just the Knicks, but a bunch of those other teams, and they are. And I think the Knicks should see the Pacers as a team that they should outpace, no pun intended, for the rest of the season. And this 10-game stretch, I think, they played Milwaukee in this stretch, but this 10-game stretch, I believe, is is um, an opportunity for the Knicks to build a cushion between them and some of the other playing teams so they can have a higher seed in the playing if that's what it's going to be uh, and gives them an opportunity to really make some noise in the, play- in the Eastern Conference standings. So we'll be here. Excited. We'll be on Twitter. Follow the conversation. Don't forget, check out sportsethos.com. Follow at sportsethos at ethosnicks. Until next time.